Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. Today, I'm going to tell you about the mysterious circumstances surrounding the death and or disappearances of the Sauter children from Fayetteville, West Virginia. So pour yourself a strong cup of joe and let's dive in. It was Christmas Eve of the year 1945 in Fayetteville, West Virginia. The Sauter family had spent the evening together, and the younger children were eagerly awaiting for Christmas morning to open up their presents. Parents Jenny and George Sauter took their youngest child, Sylvia, who was two, to bed with them, the oldest of the boys still living at home. George Jr., who was 16, and John, 23, decided to also head off to bed after having a long day of work at their dad's cold trucking business. Joe, the oldest of the 10 children, was off serving in the Army. Maurice, 14, Martha, 12, Louis, 9, Jenny, 8, and Betty, 5, all stayed up to play with some of their new toys that they were able to open on Christmas Eve with Marion, 17, watching over them. In the middle of the night, Jenny and George awoke to smoke filling the house. They quickly realized that their house was on fire and would soon realize that their lives would never be the same again. George and Jenny Sauter were both Italian immigrants. George was born in Sardinia in 1895 and immigrated to the U.S. with his family when he was 13 years old. He found work on the Pennsylvania Railroad and eventually moved to Smithers, West Virginia, where he launched his own trucking company, hauling dirt and freight coal. Jenny had immigrated with her parents from Italy when she was only three years old. She met George while she was working at her parents' store in West Virginia, and the two got married and settled in as a family going on to have 10 children while settling down in Fayetteville, West Virginia. Fayetteville had a small but active Italian community, which kept George and Jenny tied to their roots. They were a pretty average middle-class family and lived a pretty normal blue-collar life. On December 24, 1945, that normal life would turn into a tragedy. At 12.30 a.m. during the first hour of Christmas Day, Jenny awoke to her telephone ringing. It was pretty late for a phone call, but Jenny rolled out of bed and went to answer it. Now, she couldn't hear anyone directly talking to her, but she did hear a man's voice and some laughter in the background, as well as glasses clinking, which is very odd. Yeah, normally when I call somebody, I try to, like, say something to them, even if it's just, hello. Well, like, even if it was, like, somehow, and I don't really know exactly how phones worked in 1945, but it seems odd that somehow the phone would have called them if there was, like, a party or something. Yeah, it would have had to have been somebody calling on purpose because they would have had, like, the rotary phones where they would have had to specifically dial that number. Yeah, I do know there was, like, an operator still at this time because it comes into the story later on. Anyway, she doesn't know who it is, so she went ahead and hung up the phone and decided to go back to bed. But before she made it back to her room, she noticed that her kids had left the downstairs lights on and the front door was unlocked, and Marion was asleep downstairs on the couch. So she turned off the lights and locked the door and then headed back off to bed. Shortly after this, Jenny was woken up again when she heard a loud banging on the roof and then what sounded like an object rolling off of it, which I thought could possibly have been reindeer or Santa hitting it and falling and just had a really hard landing. That would have been my first guess. It's Christmas Day. It's been a long night for him. His reindeer are a little drunk (laughs) off of the eggnog. (laughs) Okay. 
At 1 a.m., Jenny woke up to the smell of smoke and saw flames coming from George's office. The solder home was two stories with the living room, dining room, kitchen, George's office, and George and Jenny's room downstairs. Marion, John, and George Jr. shared a bedroom at the top of the stairs with the rest of the kids sharing two rooms at either end of the upstairs hallway. So Jenny saw the smoke and quickly woke up George and grabbed Sylvia, who was sleeping in their room, and escaped the house. Marion, George Jr., and John also woke from the fire and made their way outside. So at 12.30, Jenny woke up and answered the phone, and the house wasn't on fire. Correct. And then by 1 o'clock, it was on fire. Yes. So within that half hour period, something happened. And as well as the sound of something hitting the roof and rolling off in that time period as well. So George realized that the younger kids were not outside and he was frantic to get back in and try to help them. So he busted a window open to get back in the house. For some reason, he couldn't go through the front door. I assume the fire was just blocking it. He's trying to figure out how to get upstairs, but the whole downstairs and the stairs themselves were all in flames. So he had to go back outside. Once he's outside, he's trying to come up with a new plan to get them out from the second story, and he always kept a ladder propped against the side of the house for whatever reason, and he remembered that, so he ran over there, but the ladder was missing. And now he's trying to figure out what can I do to help get my kids out, and he thinks to start his coal trucks, he had two of them, and try to back them up to the house so he could climb in them and try to get into the windows of the bedrooms, but both of his trucks wouldn't start even though he had just used them the previous day. He even tries to like go to his rain barrels to scoop water and try to put the fire out himself, but it was winter, it's Christmas, and it was all frozen. Not only is the ladder missing, but his trucks aren't starting either? Correct. This is either a really bad day or somebody else is involved. And it gets worse. So... Marion runs to the neighbor's house and she's trying to get them to call the fire department, but the phone wouldn't connect to the operators and neighbors around the house were seeing the fire and trying to call, but the phones weren't working. And one of the neighbors is finally like, okay, I'm going into town. I'm going to go get the fire chief. His name was FJ Morris. So the fire chief is finally tracked down and he decides to go ahead and call the other firefighters to try and put the fire out as they do. Smart. Yeah. But... They're having a hard time connecting to all the firefighters, and I assume it's just because it's Christmas morning now, I guess, and for one reason or another, they do not get to the scene until 8 a.m., seven hours after the house initially caught fire. That's way later than what could have really been helpful. And you might wonder, "Hmm, maybe they're kind of far away. No, the fire department was two and a half miles from the solder home. So that's just a few minutes drive. It shouldn't have taken them seven hours to get there. Yeah, at this point, the house had been burnt down for nearly six hours. It burnt down in less than an hour, about 45 minutes. So when they got there, it was done. I mean, they might as well have just not shown up. So after it's all said and done, the fire was ruled officially to have been caused by faulty wiring. And after searching the scene, no remains of the five children were found. So it was presumed that they had completely burned in the fire and that there was nothing left. George filled in what was left of the basement with dirt and planted flowers in it as a memorial for his lost children. To the community and everyone in Fayetteville, the Sauter home fire just seemed like a terrible accident. But George and Jenny weren't convinced. (laughs) 
The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. George and Jenny Sauter had just lost five of their children, presumably to a horrific accident. But the parents had a feeling that something was not quite right. Things weren't adding up. So they started to ask questions and kind of hold their own investigation. First off, the faulty wiring that supposedly caused the fire sounded really weird to George because he had just had the wiring checked a couple months before the fire and it was absolutely fine. And Jenny also remembered that the lights downstairs were on and so she wondered how that could be if there was faulty wiring which I'm going to be honest I guess I don't necessarily understand that unless they were on during the fire that's super weird why did the fire department think that the wiring was faulty then I'm not sure that they necessarily had concrete evidence or if that's just what they decided the thing is is that the house was basically entirely burned down so I'm not sure how you would even check that, I guess. But that's what they ruled as the cause of the fire. It's what they determined and officially said, I guess. Well, and this is an older case, so maybe they just didn't have the proper knowledge or tools to investigate this fire correctly, and so they may not have known or really been able to tell what caused it. Well, and I'm going to be honest, I don't have a lot of faith in a fire department that took seven hours to get to a house that's on fire that was only two and a half miles away. That is a really good point. Yeah. Also weird is that a telephone repairman went and checked the phone lines to figure out why they weren't connecting. Because initially, I guess people thought maybe they burned in the fire and it somehow messed with them. But they had been cut by someone. And that's why the phones weren't connecting the night or morning, I guess, of the fire. So somebody had cut the phone lines of all like the neighbors and stuff too or why were the neighbors phones not working i think phone lines kind of connect and if you cut the right one it would mess up because if you think about a power line getting hit not just one house is affected okay i was thinking about like the specific phone lines connected to the house being cut i guess i assume it was because the surrounding neighbors couldn't connect i assume it was not directly maybe it was outside of the house i'm not sure okay that makes more sense So George and Jenny decide they need to reevaluate things and they go back to the memorial site and they're walking around and Sylvia, the youngest child, picks up an object from the yard. Jenny recalled that on the night of the fire, she woke up to the sound of an object hitting the roof and rolling off and thought maybe it was that. It was a hard rubber object and George looked at it and said that it looked similar to a pineapple bomb, which was used in the army. So it wasn't reindeer hitting the roof (laughs) it was in fact not santa and his reindeer maybe erica here's a photo of it i'll show you and we'll also post this on our social media as well yeah that definitely could have been the object that she'd heard hit the roof and it had rolled off it definitely could have been i wonder why they didn't find it until now but 
I can't imagine the mindset they would have been in in any of the times they were there. And I don't know how thorough of an investigation the fire and police department actually did. Yeah, once again, they took seven hours to get there. (laughs) So I'm willing to bet their investigation consisted of glance here, glance there, faulty wiring. We're done. Yeah. Take some. The two-year-old kid to find the evidence, I guess. So George and Jenny just had more questions. What happened to the ladder that they always had propped up against the house? Why didn't his truck start when they were fine the previous day? And how were there no remains left of the five children? And that was what got Jenny. Yeah, the fact that there's no remains of the five children is something that is super weird. Yeah, it wasn't adding up. And she actually started doing little experiments and she would burn the bones of animals to see what was left behind. And each time she ended up with bones still present. So she decided to go speak to a crematorium employee who informed her that um, bones of bodies will still remain after being burned for two hours at 2000 degrees. So it really just made no sense that there were absolutely no remains left of the five children. Yeah, that really wouldn't make any sense. And it really just doesn't explain what happened to the bones of the children if they were in the fire. Well, it's weird that there were none left, and it's weird that there were still, like, appliances and stuff there that you could tell what it was. So, a witness came forward and said that he saw a man at the solder home the night of the fire with a block and tackle that was used for removing car engines. And this might mean that someone was tampering with his coal trucks, if you remember, they weren't starting. And for those of you who don't know, because I... I didn't when they said block and tackle. It's actually like this series of ropes and pulleys that pulls an engine up out of the car, which I can't imagine he would have been able to sneak away with two engines. And I'm also pretty sure they were still there. So I wonder if maybe that was if someone started the fire, that was their plan and realized that was a bad one and cut something. I was going to say, because I think he would notice if the engines were missing from his vehicles. And did, did they ever find out like why the vehicles weren't starting? Not that I could find, just that there was something wrong with it. Yeah, none of the articles go into detail about that. There's actually a couple articles that are written in response trying to figure out exactly the details, I guess, of some of this stuff because it wasn't really, I mean, all these findings are done because of George and Jenny and it was, there wasn't really a police investigation because they had all just decided that the kids definitely burned in the fire. But because of some of this evidence, the Sauter family started to kind of talk and think through it, and they started recalling occurrences that led up to the fire. The two older sons that had still lived at home remembered that just before Christmas, they noticed a man who had parked along the highway near their school and was watching them and the other children when they were on their way home. That's a little creepy. A little strange, yes. You never want to see a man across the road just parked sitting outside of his car watching you. That's nerve-wracking. Yeah, it would definitely kind of throw me off a little bit, and I would probably wonder what was going on. It's definitely worth noting. Also, a few months prior to the fire, George was at his house when he noticed a man walking around outside. The man acknowledged the fuse boxes outside of the solder home and told George that they were going to start a fire someday. George thought it was weird because he just had all the wiring checked, like I mentioned earlier, and it was all fine. So who, like, an actual professional checked the wiring, right? Yeah, he had 
professionals come in and check them and then this this random stranger i guess was walking around his house and said this that's really suspicious (laughs) like i don't even know what to think of it erica's making a face like what and i agree it's so weird it makes can you imagine you just look outside and someone's walking around your house they're like Hmm, these boxes are going to start a fire one day. Like, what? Get off my lawn. Like, that's so weird. Yeah, like, get the heck out of here. <laughs> Don't try to determine what... What? No. Yeah, it's odd. <laughs> Around that same time, another strange man came by the house, and he was trying to sell family life insurance to George, and George didn't want to buy it. And the guy got very mad. He was livid and started screaming at George, saying... Your goddamn house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to be paid for the dirty remarks you've been making about Mussolini. Which, if you remember, George and Jenny are Italian immigrants and George did not like Mussolini as, you know, quite a few people didn't. And he was not afraid to make that opinion known. And I guess he got into arguments about it with locals in their small Italian immigrant community. So some random guy showed up trying to sell life insurance, and then just immediately gets angry and starts telling this family that he presumably just met that their house is going up in smoke? Yeah, when when George doesn't want to buy it, he gets mad and says this, and he's saying he's going to pay for the comments he's made about Mussolini, and I'm just, I don't understand how those would go together, because say for whatever reason this stranger is the one who starts the fire and he's mad about the Mussolini thing, why would he try to sell life insurance to George first? I don't know if maybe that was his way of like trying to just see the house a little bit because when they open the door, you can kind of look in and kind of get a vague idea and then it's not as suspicious for you to be seen on the property if you're going up to talk to them and like they already know that you're there. It kind of throws suspicion off of you a little bit, but saying this yeah <laughs> does not throw suspicion at him brain suspicion it's weird and i mean mussolini had very polarizing people who either disagreed or agreed with him i guess but i just george and jenny had been in the u.s for some time at this point and i can't really understand why now it would matter as much what they say they don't even they're not living in Italy anymore. They're not involved in it. I don't know. I don't personally see why it would matter that much. However, I know how heated people can get when it comes to political stuff and that kind of thing. So you just never really know, I guess, what people are capable of and what's going to trigger them, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Well, I, I have two questions. So one, um, was this man by chance did he just happen to be also the same guy that had came and like told them that their fuses were gonna catch fire they were two separate guys okay and two why is the person that's selling life insurance why does he just randomly know the political opinions of this family I mean, it would have had to have been experience or word of mouth. Maybe he got into an argument with George. George just didn't really remember him. I guess George, like I said, he ran his mouth about it often. So maybe it was a conversation they overheard. And there was just, it clearly angered him enough to come yell at him. But I don't know what caused, what led up to that interaction. Aside from the fact that George was vocal about his opinions on it. 
With all this evidence and suspicion, George and Jenny became convinced that their children did not die in that house fire, and they think they were kidnapped prior to the house fire, like right before it started, possibly. So when Jenny had got up to, like, check the phone and then to shut the lights off and all this stuff, she didn't happen to notice if... No. I guess, wait, their bedroom was upstairs. Yeah, they were upstairs, and I think she just assumed they were probably in bed, especially since the daughter who was looking after them was sleeping downstairs on the couch. I think she just, and her room was downstairs, so she just kind of woke up, was like, oh, the lights are on and the door's unlocked, so let me hit that and go back to bed. She didn't think much of it, I assume, but the door being unlocked could explain them being gone, possibly. Yeah, that really could explain it, but also did... The, and I don't remember the daughter's name that was sleeping downstairs. Marion. Okay. Did Marion say if the children went upstairs to bed or did they fall asleep downstairs with her? From what I've gathered, they don't directly say, but I think they went upstairs to bed and she just decided to stay downstairs or maybe she fell asleep while they're still playing. I'm not a hundred percent sure. There was no statements of her saying anything suspicious about it though. And if somebody, like, came into the home to kidnap the children, she didn't wake up to it? I guess not, unless... I mean, if you remember, that ladder was missing, so maybe that came into play. And maybe they got in through the windows in the kids' bedrooms using the ladder and took it with them. That's possible. I didn't really... I forgot about the ladder missing, but they could have... I I think that might have been a two-person job, though, if somebody was climbing a ladder to a second story, grabbing a child, taking them down, especially when there's five children. I think George and Jenny maybe thought that it was like some type of group thing. Like I see somewhere someone says something about like possibly like the mafia in the area had approached George and wanted something and you know they didn't like his answer or he wouldn't get involved and it was something like that. That's pure speculation but. Is this another case like the Karen Waltz one where he just wrote a book and the Israeli mafia got super mad and just went after him? I think this one's maybe a little bit more valid just because there was the mafia in this area. (laughs) They would have had more reason to be involved than, yeah, than Scott Rawson being involved in the Israeli mafia. (sighs) Who knows? I don't know why the mafia is always getting thrown around. Maybe... That's something we need to look more into. Maybe it does go with some cases that we will cover in the future. It's possible. They definitely are responsible for a lot of crime. Some people came forward claiming to have seen the missing children. Um, One woman said she saw them peering from a passing vehicle while the fire was still active. Another witness claimed that the children were at a tourist stop between Fayetteville and Charleston and she worked at this tourist stop and the morning after the fire they came in and she served them breakfast and she said the vehicle that they that she saw them in or leave in had a Florida license plate but there weren't any details on what the make and model was so I don't understand why she wouldn't have got that information. Well, I wonder if maybe she did get that information and only gave it to the police and then the police did what they love to do and they didn't give us that information for some reason. Possibly. I guess for me, I just, I, I, I'm struggling with the police and fire department in this whole story and it does get a little bit worse. We'll get there. Another witness did say that she saw four of the five missing children at a hotel in Charleston a week after the fire. This is what she said. The children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction. I do not remember the exact date. However, the entire party did register at 
the hotel and stayed in a large room with several beds. They registered about midnight. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to talk to these children. One of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. I sensed that I was being frozen out, and so I said nothing more, and they left early the next morning. So, a couple things. One, it sounds like multiple people are seeing these children who supposedly died in this fire. And also, it sounds to me, I guess you didn't say 100%, but it sounds to me like this witness was somebody that worked at the hotel. And if she did, wouldn't she have records of like when they checked in and when they checked out? Because she said that she doesn't remember the exact date. Yeah. Well, and again, I just, I guess I'm not sure how exactly accurate the documentation for staying at hotels was in 1945. Well, I know that in the case that is going to be releasing next week is from 1935, mm-hmm. and there was, like, documentation from days that were, they checked into the hotel and left. Then it seems like they should have that, but it was never released if they do have it, or, I mean, she could have fabricated the story. There was a, at one point, $5,000 reward and later $10,000 reward for information So it's possible it came of that. I'm not sure exactly when she gave her statement and how long after the fire it was. Okay, that would make sense then. I just felt like there was a little bit of a hole there. It definitely was. And I mean, it could also just depend on the hotel too. If it's some shady backwoods motel, they might not make you write down or they could have given maybe like a fake name or it just didn't pan out. They tried to follow it and couldn't figure it out, I guess. In 1947, Jenny and George sent a letter detailing their circumstances surrounding their children's disappearances to the FBI to ask them for help. And the FBI actually agreed to help, but they said they needed local police to okay it and invite them in. And when they contacted local police and the fire department, both of them declined to help the FBI, so they were not able to come in and do their own investigation. I am completely over the police and fire department in this case. (laughs) And normally, I don't get super angry with the police, even when they make little mistakes, I guess. But right now, I'm just completely fed up. And I think that the two-year-old little Sylvia could have done way better at this case than any of them. I can't understand why they wouldn't have been okay with helping. I think they just, I think in their heads, and whether it was true or not, the kids died in the fire and they didn't even want to entertain any other possibilities. But For me personally, if Jenny and George are so sure and they have this evidence laid out, like, how do you not at least check into it, I guess? That's just lazy police work and lazy fire department work. And it's people who are there for a paycheck and not actually because they care about the community or their jobs. And I hate when we see that. Well, and here in a minute, I'll get into something about the fire chief that really falls into he just wanted the family to accept that the kids died in the fire. So Jenny and George, they're not getting help and they're trying really hard. They're doing what they can. So they get money together and hire a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley. And Tinsley found out a couple things for the Sodder parents. First, Tinsley found out that the same insurance man who threatened George months prior to the fire was also on the cor- the coroner's jury that ruled the children's death a result of the fire. And I was kind of like, 
what is it, coroner's jury? I didn't even know they had that. But they have a group of people who look at what's given to them and rule with the um, coroner that, yes, it is probable that they died because of the fire. Is that still a thing to this day? I don't know. I don't know if it's a jury or if it's, you know, just a couple of fellow employees of that area come in and say, yeah, that's probably correct, I guess. Yeah, that's the only thing that I can really think of is, I guess, I don't know. It's just not something that I've ever heard of before, but it could be beneficial. But this guy, the insurance man who screamed at George, should not be on the jury. Yeah, a jury in general shouldn't have anyone who is related or has any ties to the case. And he clearly did, which I don't know if they knew it or not. He obviously knew what he was doing. But it's sketchy that he was one of the ones who was like, yeah, the children died in the fire when he threatened and said that George's kids were gonna die when he had threatened George. Just all around a terrible idea. Yeah. Tinsley also found out that the fire chief told the minister in town that he'd found a heart in the ashes of the fire and hid it inside a dynamite box, which he then buried at the site. And I just, what? My brain is hurting. (laughs) You guys can't see me, but my head is literally in my hands. It's so weird because one, if, well, let me finish the story, I guess. So they went to this spot and dug it up. And the box is there with said heart. And they did testing on it. And it was beef liver. So (laughs) I guess the fire chief did this in an attempt to try and give the family closure. They're thinking if they saw some remains there, they could move on. But like, how are they going to know it's there? His strategy was to bury beef liver and then tell the minister and hope it got around to the family. It's so weird. I just, I don't even know what to say at the moment. On my notes and stuff for this, I wrote and highlighted, I don't even know. Because I don't even know. Like, what do you say to that? Like, what? What a weirdo. Words are not coming out of my mouth right now because I'm trying to wrap my head around why the fire chief thought that this would be a good idea. Why did he not think that it would be dug up and, like, tested? Or did he just... My what? only guess is that he he buried it because he wanted there to be remains there that would be found, I guess. So the Sauter family could be like, okay, there's remains, there's evidence that the children died here. But I guess I don't know what beef liver looks like, but I don't know why they would that why he would think that like you said, they weren't gonna test it and figure it out. Like you're just causing more pain because they're finding it and they're like, Oh my gosh, like what am I maybe they did die here and we've been through all this stress trying to find this other information, but then it just gets pulled back again. And I just don't understand. I think it causes more hurt. How hard headed do you have to be to be so stuck in your own ways that you can't even entertain this idea that maybe just maybe these children are in some other sort of danger and they aren't laying in this pile of rubble and I just I don't like you just obviously don't care about these children or what your job is you just like I said you're there for the paycheck and maybe even like he's the fire chief so is he there for the title of chief and that power that he gets from it he just I don't I think in his head, he was coming from a place of trying to comfort them, but it just wasn't right. Well, he uh, he didn't think it through. Yeah. I think he he was grasping at straws, like, what can I do to bring them closure? But I just think it, it definitely was the wrong way to go. 
1949, George and Jenny brought in a pathologist from Washington, D.C. to help them because they decided they were going to dig up the whole site and search it again and see if there's anything that was missed. And the search turned up a couple of small objects as well as some pieces of vertebrae. And these were sent to the Smithsonian Institute for testing to see if they belonged to any of the children. But it was concluded that they all came from the same person and it was a boy between 16 and 17 years old, but the oldest missing solder boy was only 14. And it was also noted that the vertebrae had not been exposed to fire. So it was likely that those came in from the dirt that George had brought in to make the memorial, which that's a whole nother story. Yeah, that's a whole nother who is this guy and what happened to him and... Yeah, I don't know anything about that, so... The Sodders continued to do what they could. They made flyers, and like I said earlier, they had a $5,000 reward, which eventually went to a $10,000 reward for any information that would lead them to figure out what happened. And they were they were adamant that their kids did not die in that fire. In 1952, they put up the infamous billboard on Route... It's now Route 16. I think it was Route 19 back then. If you know about the Sodder children's story, you know about the billboard. It was this huge thing. And they had all the pictures of the missing children on it. And basically a paragraph summarizing the best they could what happened and how they thought it was the kids were kidnapped. And they just kept trying to bring attention and see what they could find out. And they left it up there for decades. In the following years, sightings and tips would come in. And George always followed them up. He would go to wherever it was to cover the tip and figure out if it was relevant. And there was this one time you saw a newspaper photo of children at school in New York City. And he was convinced that one of the girls in the photos was his daughter, Betty. And he drove there and he actually tracked down the family. But the parents of the child refused to let him see her. So whether or not it was her... I can see both ways. If it wasn't her, I wouldn't let my this man see my kid either. But there is a sinister aspect. If someone had kidnapped the kids and just kind of gave them away, which I think is what they lean towards, that they would they were still surviving, they wouldn't want it. You know, they wouldn't want the possibility of that kid being taken away from them. Yeah, like if whoever had taken them had like sold them for some reason, or maybe they got them through an adoption i don't know if say the kids were taken and dropped somewhere and they got them through adoption other tips kept coming in but nothing ever led to any concrete information in 1968 jenny received a letter addressed to her in the mail and it was postmarked from kentucky but it had no return address and there was a photo of a man included in it and he appeared to be in his like mid-20s maybe early 30s and written on the back of the picture it said lewis Sauter." I love Brother Frankie, Lil Boys, and then it had letters and numbers. The first set says A90132 or in 35. And the word or was actually in there. So I'm not sure what that connection is, but the photo looks like Lewis and we'll post them both on our social media. It's the middle photo of the lineup of the five children. And Erica, what do you think? I think it looks a lot like him. Yeah, the similarities between the two photos is uncanny. Like, I would have just immediately assumed that that was the little boy in the picture. And George and Jenny were convinced it was. They put the photo up on the billboard with the kids' photos, actually. And 
they hired another private investigator to look into it. And the private investigator went to Kentucky and they just never heard from him again. What? He never contacted them again. They could never get a hold of him or find him again. He just was like, gone. Did he like learn information that he shouldn't have? And I don't know. Maybe it's possible that he like, let's say the mafia was involved. Maybe he ran into the wrong people. I don't know. I I don't know either. That's just super strange. You'd think that like he would have contacted them or something. Yeah, I like guess? if you if you don't find anything, you just say I don't find anything. If you well, and they paid him, so he basically took the money and ran. Uh, so I wonder if it wasn't even like a real private investigator or something. Yeah, I'm not sure. It could have just been or either way, it was they got taken advantage of, kind of. Unless something sinister happened to him, which I don't know how much stock I put into that. So George ended up passing away in 1968 and Jenny passed away in 1989 and the billboard eventually came down. Only surviving child that we know of who's still alive is Sylvia and there's grandchildren who are around as well and they continue to look for answers and they're still trying to figure out the mystery. But as of today, it's still unsolved. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. If you would like to support us, go to anchor.fm forward slash Erica Abby. Donations to our podcast are greatly appreciated and go into making the podcast possible. If you like us, you can recommend us or give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to us on your podcast listening medium. Thank you so much.